find ourselves in chapter 18 of 2 Samuel. If you'll turn there in your Bibles or any other way that you seem to pull up those verses, do have them because we teach verse by verse through the Bible most of the time. We're doing a little bit different on Sunday mornings as we're teaching through the life of David, but we only have about uh, four more weeks and then we'll be going into the Gospel of Luke. So, um, chapter 18 today. And Lord, we ask that you would speak to us now through the abundance of your word. To hear all that you are saying, let us all leave here having heard from you, being strengthened by you. And as uh, Mark just saying, uh, peace in the middle of the storm. Give that to us, Lord, and to people throughout Texas and Florida, be with them today and continue to speak to us how we're to share in their struggles. And we just lay that before you in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Well, as we get into chapter 18 today, remember David is probably going through the greatest trial he has ever gone through. And that is his own precious son, Absalom is out to overthrow him and to viciously kill him and dethrone David and take over himself as king. And so David has had to leave Jerusalem. He's now got a battle camp area in a city. We're not sure exactly where, but it's a distance away. And the battle is looming. And so David numbered the people who were with him and set captains over thousands and captains over hundreds. Then David sent out one-third of the people under the hand of Joab, he's the main general, one-third under the hand of Abishai, his brother, who's also one of the main guys that have been with David for decades, who was Joab's brother, and then one-third under the hand of Ittai, Ittai the Gittite. Now, this is unusual because this guy, if you remember back in 2 Samuel chapter 15, had just come for the first time the day before to meet David. But this guy was so deeply moved at this King David. There was something so unique about him. There was something that touched his heart spiritually. And so as David was having to flee for his life out of Jerusalem, Ittai went with him. And David says, don't go with me. I don't even know you. You don't even know me. And he's like, he says something very profound in 2 Samuel 15, verse 24, 21. He says, as the Lord lives, this is Ittai saying this to David, as the Lord lives, and as my Lord the King lives, surely in whatever place my Lord the King shall be, whether in death or life, even there your servant shall be. So it's, it's neat to see this deep commitment, even up into his life and his family's life, whatever happens with David is going to happen with him. And uh, God sometimes just does those amazing divine appointments, those divine moments. I mean, he could have showed up the day after this. He could have showed up two weeks before this. 
But this is, again, a, a sign for us that when God is working on the heart and, and, and there this guy comes to the place to realize that my lot in life from this point forward is going to be the same lot that you have, David. Whatever you go through, good or bad, even unto death, I am side by side with you. And David, beyond all the other 600 mighty men that had been with David for decades and fought side by side in battle with him, he said, you are going to be over one third of my army. And indeed he was. And there in the second part of verse 2, then the king said to the people, I also will surely go out with you myself. But the people answered and said, this is sort of strong, speaking to the king, you shall not go out. For if we flee away, they will not care about us, nor if half of us die, will they care about it. But with you, you're worth 10,000 of us now, for you are now more help in the city. And the king said to them, whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood beside the gate, and the people went out by hundreds and by thousands. We're going to see in this chapter a contrast between the beautiful, submitted spirit of David and that in contrast to his general Joab. But David has this beautiful, yielded spirit to God. And it shows up in his relationships with his fellow man. And David, remember, this is a situation that's oh so similar. Back in chapter 11, remember when he sinned with Bathsheba? And then he ended up killing her husband Uriah. And then from there on down, things end up going sort of difficult for David up to this day. And it started... In verse 1 of chapter 11, when it said David was unwilling to go out to battle, but he sent all his generals out and all the people, all the men to go out, but he himself stayed back in the comfort and safety of his palace. And in so doing, it was a telltale sign that David was not at a good place spiritually. He actually was at a place of great compromise And it showed up with this move of his unwillingness to go out to battle. And so David is saying, this is a very similar situation. I I don't want to make the same mistake that I've made before. But the people said, no, 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 this is a different situation. Similar looking, but not the same. Number one is, David, you're you're more valuable. They've already declared, remember, Ahithophel had told Absalom, This battle is with our brethren. This is a civil war. We're fighting family against family here. So we need to concentrate on David and him only and killing him. Once we kill him, the battle's over. People will stop fighting because it is brother against brother. And so they had already declared that was it. And so for David to be out on the battlefield, it, 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 wouldn't, it wouldn't have helped because they just would have sort of just done whatever it took to get a group of guys to run straight at David. And, and you know, in the military, you have people spread out. And so it would, it would be much to their disadvantage for him to be out there in the midst of battle. Secondly, 
David was a genius military commander. And so it would be best if he were back in a strategic location where they could get to him and get the next plan of action. And so at this point, David, um, you with your sword, sure, that's what you did in your younger years. But now we need you in a strategic location overseeing the battle from a safety zone in the city. And the other reason is, as we're going to find out, that when it really came down to fighting, David's heart wasn't in it. He did not want to see Absalom hurt. And the guys knew that. When it really came down and the battle was going against Absalom, and now you've got to just sort of give it to him with all stops out to just fight one brash hard time to overcome the enemy, David would probably say, back off, back off, back off. Maybe they'll surrender or maybe, you know, we, I, don't, I don't want Absalom hurt. And so David was, was not in a good frame of mind. So he was a bit older now, in his late 50s, his 60s. David would die at 70 of old age. And so he wasn't the young spry guy that he was in military combat at one time. And it was important. And David, I love this. He, he just had this beautiful heart of yieldedness. Okay, I, I hear you guys, and I'm, I'm willing to submit to that. Well, in verse 5, now the king had commanded Joab, Abishai, and Ittai to deal gently for my sake, for my sake, with, my, with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave all the captains orders concerning Absalom. Two important words in that verse 5. He commanded and everybody heard the clear orders. So he couldn't have he couldn't have made it any more distinct. Guys, our plan of action is to take Absalom alive. And sometimes you do that in military battle. You know, you're, you're heated, you're, you're angry, you're, you know, here's Absalom, he's this murderer, he killed his brother um, Ammon in, 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 in wickedness. He, he is a, a traitor. He spent years subverting the whole nation to, to love him and hate David and to be willing to follow him. And, uh, and then he got all of David's concubines up on the roof and, and had relations with all of David's wives in front of the people. He, he was a, a, a wicked, immoral man. And, um, and he's a guy that to leave alive would not be a wise thing. But David's the king. And that was the command. That was the order that was given. Well, we're going to see this in a minute coming up. Well, in verse 6, though, the people went out into the field of battle against Israel, and the battle was in the woods of Ephraim. And the people of Israel were overthrown there before the servants of David, and a great slaughter of 20,000 took place there that day. That's a lot of sons. That's a lot of husbands. That's a lot of dads. But for the battle was scattered over the face of the whole countryside, 
And the woods devoured more people that day than the sword devoured. Now, this is interesting because they're out in battle and, and it just so happened in the terrain that those on Absalom's side were getting killed by the nature of the woods. Now, I, I, I think that part of that might have been natural. It just was overgrown and, and uh, maybe the things had dried out more and the sticks were more without leaves and harder and brittle. I, I don't know. We can only speculate. But God clearly did not want Absalom to secede. God clearly was going to defend his man, David, as he had done repeatedly. David, with flaws and sins and warts and all, was his anointed. And the Bible makes it clear, and David talks about this, that God alone raises up and God alone brings down. And that if anybody tries to touch that, they're touching something that God holds very sacred. Nebuchadnezzar learned that, remember? When he stood there in Babylon and looked out over his kingdom and said, look at what great things I have. He became like an animal for seven years. And at the end of that seven years, as he was out in the field like a cow gnawing on the grass and his hair grew out and his fingernails grew out like a bird's claws and he all of a sudden came to his senses and he said, there's one God, there is one king, there is one king that's rule will be forever and ever and that's God and, and there is no man, no king, no person in any authority on earth that God can't humble in a second. And from this day forward, I realize all my authority is from God and he can take me down in a second and I must acknowledge who is truly in control here. And so we see throughout the Bible, God uniquely using nature at times to punish evildoers or even to win battles. I think of that story sort of humorous in Elijah where where Elisha is just become the prophet and he's walking up from being anointed so. And these guys, these young men see him and say, hey, baldy. <laughs> and they start mocking him thinking, oh, you're some prophet now and you're just a short little Jewish bald guy. And they start mocking him and God had bears come out of the woods and, and start mawing on those guys saying, uh-oh. Of course, we remember this story with um, Nadab and Abihu when, or excuse me, Korah and Dathan when they came against Moses and God opened up the earth and just swallowed them up. And of course, remember the flood. And we also remember the, the Red Sea that closed in on the Egyptian army. And uh, we can keep, keep on going. God had stones fall from the sky sometime and, and kill the enemy. So God does fight along with us, even though in, in some cases his people lost the battle. It was the Lord even in that. 
letting them get beaten, but only to a certain point. And then he intervened. And so, again here, God, Absalom has every advantage. He has most of the people. He has most of the military. He has most of the money. He has all of the the city of Jerusalem and most of the cities taken over. David has fled out into a little village. And and definitely, uh, if you were a betting man, you would not bet on this disproportionate battle that was going on. But again, the thing we got to remember is the Lord is fighting. We may not see it. And sometimes we see it in the natural and we don't see the supernatural in the natural. But here it's clearly saying that God was fighting with David and using the forest as his particular soldiers to take down Absalom. Well, in particular, especially sort of setting the stage for verse 9. Absalom met the servants of David. Absalom rode on a mule. That's a sign of prestige in those days. The mule went under a thick bough of great Tenerbeth tree, and his head got caught in the Tenerbeth tree, so he was left hanging between heaven and earth, and the mule, which was under him, went on. We remember back in in chapter 14, verse 26, it it pointed out that one of the chief glorious attributes about handsome Absalom, and he was the most handsome man in the country, was his hair. That once a year, he would cut his hair only, get a buzz job, I guess. And when they did it, they said it's like four to five pounds of hair. So I, I sort of picture it being... Uh, sort of a tight curl. And, and, uh, and there it's just sort of poofing out and getting huge. And, and uh, as he rides on his chariot, his glorious hair is, is firm but orderly and blowing. And, and uh, he hasn't, he, you know, as stepping up to be crowned as king, he wanted to be in all his glory. So his hair was not being cut. And there in battle thinking, man, I can't lose. He's cruising along in his, you know, Rolls Royce, a mule of those days. And all of a sudden, <laughs> oh, oh, and the mule's trying to keep going. Hold on, hold on, stop, stop. And then the next thing, he's dangling. Now, we, we say his hair. It doesn't say that here. But it's always been taught that way. So it's one of those Bible answer man questions sometimes I get asked. Well, I, I was trying to find, where did that guy get his, stuck in his hair? And it's like, well, we preach it so exacting that it was his hair that got cut. People start thinking it's in the Bible, but it, we don't know. He might have got caught by his coat or might have got stuck on a branch. We, we don't know. But it appears it was probably with his hair. And so if you would, vanity, vanity is what started this whole thing. My dad, he won't talk to people. My dad, he's up in his ivory tower. My dad, you know, he's not being the king, and, you know, he's not ruling like he should, but if I were in charge, you know, you would have a good judge. You'd have a guy down here mixing and matching with the people. And, and it was his vanity that felt that David is yesterday's news, and he is the cutting edge for the, the future of Israel. 
And now we see that it's his vanity that ends it all. <laughs> his vanity started it, and now he's caught in his beautiful, glorious hair, his physical vanity. Well, in verse 10, now a certain man saw it and told Joab and said, I just saw Absalom hanging in the tenderbit tree. And Joab said to the man who told him, you just saw him? Why did you not strike him there into the ground? I would have given you 10 shekels of silver and a belt. I would have promoted you. And you would have been one of the chief uh, soldiers after that. You would have been a hero in Israel. But the man said to Joab, though I were to receive a thousand shekels of silver in my hand, I would not raise my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you, Abishai, Ittite, saying, beware, lest anyone touch the young man Absalom. Otherwise, I would have dealt falsely against my own life. And there is nothing hidden from the king. And you yourselves have set yourself against me. So David would have said, you killed him? Joab, kill that guy. And you would have killed me yourself. You, you know, there's no way I would have touched that. And Joab said, I, I can't linger with you. Shut up. You're annoying me. This guy who's yielded and submitted to the will of the king is annoying to Joab. Interesting. And he took three spears in his hand and thrust them through Absalom's heart while he was still alive in the midst of the tent of the tree. But notice Joab, the skilled soldier, placed them all in a place that wouldn't officially kill Absalom. Because notice in verse 15, he got 10 young men who bore Joab's armor, so 10 of his inner circle, and surrounded Absalom, and they struck and killed him. So they just chopped him up. And that is what officially killed him. So Joab is a cunning guy. But you see this heart. He had no intentions of ever following David's order. And guys, this isn't the first time. When David was making peace with the people of Saul, he made a deal with Saul's chief general, Abner. And Joab returns and hears that David did that and says, hey, Abner, I guess we're pals now. Come on over here and let's just talk. And, and he kills Abner. And he did it again with Amasa when David clearly had made peace. And, and, and David said, man, Joab is going to be judged by God and his whole family cursed because of betraying me and not obeying my word. But Joab was such a big guy, not even David could take him down in his lifetime. Joab was such a huge personality, and he had the loyalty of all the armies of Israel, that David knew that if he judged Joab, he would have a mutiny on his hands. So David had to sort of endure this guy, do you remember when they were taking Jerusalem? David tried to get rid of him then. He comes up and he says to the armies, whoever gets up the well into the secret way that I know and, and gets into the city and opens the gates, he's my general. And Joab snarled at everybody, nobody's trying but me. <laughs> and he kept at it until he was the one that opened the gates. So David's like, I'm still stuck with this guy. 
But we see, we see different levels of this submission thing. I, I think sometimes, I think we, we really miss it by giving a broad brush of saying, you know, I'm not in jail, so I am, must be submitted. <laughs> but, you know, there, there's, there's meekness. Meekness is when you have power, but you don't use it. It's when you have the ability to, to do something, you have the power to do it, but you, you choose not to because of a, a humble heart. Maybe you've been in that place where the police officer says, I could write you a ticket for speeding. He's got every power and authority, right? But I'm going to let you off with a warning. There we go. He had the power, but he didn't use it. In the same way, a husband towards his wife, parents towards your children, you could keep going down the order. Everybody in one way or another has a place to have a submitted heart. Even the king did towards the people in this situation. But then after that, I, I, I just think there is a, a heart of submission that's just, I, I realize that God has put everybody in authority over me and everybody in authority under me. And, and I need to, to realize that I'm gonna stand before God and give an account, just like every penny that's gone through our hands. Have we given a tithe of all that in our lifetime? I think in the same way, we're going to have to get our time and say, have we been good stewards of our time? I think people today are so nickeling and diming themselves with their time with Facebook and emails and all of that. They, they can't even focus on coming to church or focus with their kids. I think they're, they're, they're spending six, seven, eight hours extra a week they don't have and then playing catch up, trying to help get dinner ready, get the house clean, get the kids taken care of, get them dressed, get them to school. Get, and then when it comes to something that's voluntary, like being a part of uh, a, a church or being a part of uh, helping out one another, are a part of spending time seeking the Lord and the word and prayer. I, I think that they're, they're just like, they're feeling, I, I don't have time for that. I, I have just this little time left. But the reason is because they're not being good stewards of it. But I also think that in authority, we're going to give an account to God. And, and then the last thing, I think, is just a yielded spirit. It's just a constant Spirit and your attitude reflects it in everything. There's just always that yielded spirit. You, you see the line of people waiting to turn a right, and then some guy darts up and cuts in front of the guy, you know, in a, in a line of 30 people. Sometimes that happens accidentally, I understand. But there's just a, a spirit of, of saying, all those suckers are yielded, but I'm not going to be. And it's, it's just a constant spirit that, that you see putting themselves first and, and seeing their own interests more important than everybody else's interest. And, and it's a spirit that God can't use. And, 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 and you're limited in the power and authority and the work that God wants to do in your life. Joab was not meek. Joab was not submitted. 
And Joab was a guy who never lived with a beautiful, yielded spirit. The Lord defines it in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 4. He says, rather let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. Do you understand? There's a hidden person of the heart, this beautiful, submitted, yielded, meek spirit that is just incredibly precious in the eyes of God. Jesus, out of all the ways he could have described himself, he said, I'm lowly and gentle of heart, and you will find peace for your souls in my presence. I mean, isn't that the beauty of that yielded spirit? In James 3, verse 13, a verse we've looked at a number of times studying the life of David, who is wise and understanding among you? Joab thought he was. Let him show it by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. So Joab is thinking, David's emotional. David is, is being inappropriate, seeing Absalom first as his son, second as his enemy, and it's wrong. He's putting everybody at jeopardy. And you know what? Joab might be right. That might have been a very foolish move. Maybe not. Maybe they would have captured Absalom and, and, and God would have done something completely different that I can't even make up right now. Or maybe it was God's will to, to see him publicly hanged or killed, and that would have been more healing for the nation. I, I don't know. But either way, Joab thought he knew better. He thought, you know what? David is this guy. He made peace with Abner and was going to let that guy be one of his generals. He's, he's now, you know, being inappropriate with his affections towards his son, being this evil guy that he is. And, and I hear what David says, but, you know, that's, that's for people that are not named Joab. <laughs> That's for, that's for everybody else in the country whose king is David. I'm in my own unique, special category. I have to ignore David in order to make things perfect and right. Man, you know, in Peter, it says specifically to submit in 1 Peter 2.13, Therefore submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether the king is supreme or as to governors or those who sent by them the punishment of evildoers for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, referring to that submitted spirit, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free, yet not using your liberty as a cloak of vice, but as bondservants of God. Honor all people. Have a yielded, submitted, meek spirit towards everyone. Love the brotherhood. You can do that after church here today. Fear God and what? Honor the king. Obviously, if you already have great respect and honor for the king, nobody needs to tell you to honor the king, right? If you're on your honeymoon, I don't think you need to read the passage, Husbands, Love Your Wives. It's after the honeymoon. Then you got to read that going, oh, okay, now I see why God said that. Oh, okay. So here again, 
you know, he was in a unique, close relationship. He knew David as just a, a punk hiding out in the caves. Wasn't even anything. He was just a, a head guy of the banditos, the group of 400 that had gathered with David. But now David's the king, and he cannot adjust to the authority God has given him. Well, just to let you know, David, before he died, told Solomon, do not let that guy, he's poison. Don't let that leaven leaven the whole lump. You need to take him out. Be wise, Solomon. So Solomon, in 1 Kings chapter 2, he sent his general Benaniah to take out Joab before he started his rule. And he made it clear, it's because you did not have a submitted spirit and you didn't kill people justly like you think in your commentary about yourself, Joab. You murdered people that David clearly said were not to die. And therefore you were guilty and he put him to death. Well, in verse 16, finishing up here. So Joab blew the trumpet, and the people returned from pursuing Israel, for Joab held back the people. So once Absalom, their king, was dead, the battle could end. And they took Absalom, and they cast him into a large pit in the woods, and they heaped some stones. So he, he was buried in obscurity out in the middle of nowhere, so people could not go to honor him. But I think Absalom sort of knew that might, day might come, so ahead of time. Again, showing his own vanity. He actually built his own tomb <laughs> before he ever died. And he built this elaborate pillar for himself right in the King's Valley, right next to the, to the city of David. Today, you go down in the little Kidron Valley, and, and there is, a rep, there is a, something built to the uh, King of Absalom even to this day, but most think that it was built on top of the original uh, as far as the dating of it. But either way... You can see his own vanity, building a monument to himself. Well, then, um, this guy, Hamiaz, this young guy who was one of the runners for the king, wanted to go tell David. But he was not at that level yet to tell David news like, your son was just killed. And he said no. And he said, I'm going to have the Cushite, a man in greater authority uh, in this pecking order of, of runners. And this guy, Amaziah, kept pressing Joab, let me go, let me go. And he was like, okay, go. Cushite, Cushite had already ran and took off, so he thought, oh, this guy will come in afterwards. He just feels like running. I felt like running. And uh, anyway, it's my Forrest Gump thing, but anyway. Um, so Amiaz ends up outrunning the Cushite, and David says, well, what's the news? He goes, we won. He goes, well, what else? Uh, There's a lot of commotion. I didn't really catch anything much more than that. And he said, stand aside. And then the Cushite came and, and he said this in verse 31. Just then the Cushite came and the Cushite said, there's good news, my Lord, the king, for the Lord has avenged you this day on all those who rose against you. And the king said to the Cushite, is this the young man Absalom safe? So the Cushite answered, may the enemies of my Lord, the king, and all who rise against you do harm, be like that young man. So you see how delicately the Cushite had to put it. He didn't say, yep, got his head chopped off. He's dead. He, he, he had to be very, very um, tactful in saying, 
um, in an indirect way that yes, he did indeed die. He had passed away. Well, in verse 33 there, the king was deeply moved. We're going to talk about this next week at the beginning of chapter 19. And he went to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died in your place. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. So David was grieved. And we're going to look at it next week. He was inappropriately grieved because a lot of people had lost their sons and husbands and fathers. But David says something here that's extraordinary. We see him once again revealing the heart of Jesus. What does he say? If only I had died in your place. I think one, on a human level, he knows he created this moment in time. Remember back in chapter 12 when David said, I've sinned. And Nathan said, you're also forgiven. And then that's when David wrote Psalm 23. Surely his goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He knew that if God would so, in the same sentence, say, you're forgiven immediately without any hesitation, I was just waiting for you to ask and so I could give you the forgiveness. David, for almost a year, was dying physically because he was so grieved over his sin. But then he said, you're forgiven. He said, I've sinned. He said, you're forgiven immediately. And David realizes, God's got me. I hope I've been to the deepest, darkest place I've ever been. But God will be there no matter how deep the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil because the Lord is with me. And surely his goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. However, he knew that this day eventually was coming where he would reap what he sowed. In 2 Samuel 12, 10, he says, therefore the sword shall never depart from your house. David, you're forgiven, but there's consequences. And this is what's going to happen. You hit a domino that's going to hit another domino that's going to hit another domino that's going to hit another domino. And one day those dominoes are going to fall and you're going to see your kids do to you what you did to Bathsheba's family and her husband Uriah. And so thus says the Lord in verse 11 of chapter 12 of 2 Samuel, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house. So you are going to feel the pain like Uriah's parents and grandparents felt. The pain of the loss of a child. You're going to have that same deep pain and you're going to know that this is a consequence that took decades to get there, but it eventually caught up. And I think David sensed the vanity of his own moment of adultery with Bathsheba. But then he says, I wish I could die in my son's place. Now, no man can do that, right? I mean, you could, you could take on and say, hey, king, kill me instead of my son. Maybe the king would do that. But that guy would still feel guilty. That guy would still be guilty. And now he's even feeling guiltier because the death of a loved one died in his place. So it really wouldn't set him free at all. It might even put him in more bondage with having such sin. So David is saying, I, I wish I could have, but I, I can't. Job saw this. In the book of Job, verse 
Chapter 9, verse 32, when he was struggling and everybody was saying he was a sinner, all his friends were telling him, God's punishing you for your wickedness. And, and he said, listen, guys, for he, God, is not a man as I am, that I may answer him and that we should go to court together. So I can't prove my, my innocence or guilt, nor is there any mediator between us, no human being on earth, no angel in heaven can, can do something that needs to be done, who may lay his hand on us both. Joab saw, said, there is, there's got to be an immediate, but it can't be man, it can't be an angel. It's got to be someone. I, don't, I can't picture who or how right now, but he'd put one hand on God's shoulder and one hand on my shoulder and bring us together in a perfect harmony. He goes on in verse, chapter 19 of Job, verse 25 to 27, for I know that my Redeemer lives. There's somebody out there that's that mediator, and he shall stand at the last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that my flesh I shall see God. Whom shall I see for myself? And my eyes shall behold, and not another. Oh, how my heart yearns within me. So one day there's going to be a mediator, and I have joy, because that mediator is going to make me right with God. I'm positive. I'm positive when I stand before him, my heart will be rejoicing. That's faith in the Messiah. In 1 Timothy 2, looking at the doctrine now developed, in verse 3 through 6, it says, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus you hear that verse five again? There's one God. There's one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus, God coming, 100% God into human flesh, 100% man, who gave himself a ransom for us all to be testified of due time, which happens to be today. This is the heart of Jesus. In John chapter, or Romans chapter five, verse six through 10, for when we were still without strength, this is saying when we didn't even care that we were sinners. When we were saying, I don't even know if I believe there's a God. And if there's a God, I sort of hate his guts. We, we didn't care. We had no spiritual temperature to even be grieved or upset or bothered that we weren't in harmony with God. When we were just without strength, in due time Christ died for the who? The ungodly. Scarcely for a righteous man. One will dare die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone even would dare to die. But God demonstrated his own love towards us in that while we were still Absaloms. <laughs> while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. For if when we were, listen to this, enemies... We were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. God looked at all of us Absaloms. Is it, is it possible that there is somebody up there who cares about us? But they can't just care about us. They got to love us with a love we can't even imagine having towards a very, very good person. But yeah, we're not good people. That's the problem. So I need somebody to exist 
who values us. And even though we're enemies and weak and sinners, he looks at us and says, I love you only like a dad can love you. And I am willing to die in your place. Could such a one exist that could be the mediator between God and man to put his hand on each shoulder and bring us into not only a fellowship, not only a harmony, but eternal life with him. God so loved the world. You guys know it, right? He gave his only begotten son. It was love. But I was so evil, yes. You're an Absalom. (laughs) You're a murderer. You're a traitor. You're immoral. But God loves you with an unending love. And Jesus was able to do for us. The Father was able to do through his son Jesus something that David couldn't do for his son. And that was die in our place. Isn't that awesome? Let's bow our heads right now. Lord, we come before you and we once again see that David was a man after your own heart who did all your will. We once again see that here is a one that is in perfect alignment prophesying through his actions. You helping us understand how impossible the situation was. And there was only one possible answer. And now at due time, we can proclaim that although we were weak, although we were sinners, although we were enemies, you still valued us. You still loved us. You still wanted us to come to heaven with you forever, sinless. So you took all our sins upon you on the cross. Jesus now says, whoever will come, let him come. I'm rich to all who will call upon my name. No matter who you are, if you'll believe in your heart, Jesus is Lord and God has raised him from the dead, you can be saved. Jesus says, as many as receive me, I give the right to become children of God. And right now you can look unto Jesus. Let him be the author right now of your faith. You may be in a really low place like David was back in chapter 11 when he was sinning with Bathsheba. But yet God wants you today to realize he's not only the author, but he's the finisher of your faith. For the joy that was set before him endured the cross. He loved you so much it was joyful to take all your evil, ugly, wicked sins upon himself and to pay for him, and now to write your name in the book of life and to give you eternal life as a gift that even if while we were sinners Christ died, how much more now, not being enemies of Christ, he's going to reconcile us. Surely his goodness and mercy shall follow us all the days of our life, and we shall, not because we deserve it, not because we attain to a goodness of it, not because we attain to an unrighteousness of our own, but because of his love that he has loved us. And the cross is so powerful that it is finished. You're here today and you're not born again. I want you to just lift your hand and say, I must be saved today. I need my name written in the book of life. I need my sins taken away. Pray for me right now. Lift your hand high. Don't care what anybody else thinks. Yes, there's some right there. Yes, oh, God bless you. 
There's others. Just say right now, it's me. I'm the one who needs to be saved. I don't care what anybody else thinks, only what God thinks. The eye of the storm is coming for us as well. And it may be too late. If you're here today and you're saying, man, I'm I'm at where David was with Bathsheba. My heart's numb. It's wicked. It's condemned. I've committed my life to the Lord at one point in time, but I've not been obeying him. And today my heart's been filled with faith to not linger anymore in the sand pit in which I've been caught. But I'm reaching out by faith to Jesus that he will forgive me and cleanse me. And and I want to walk in the joy of my salvation. Just right now, you also lift your hands. Say, that's me. I need to rededicate my life to the Lord. I need to surrender. Yes, yes. Lift them up high. See some of you guys lifted them. There you go. God bless you guys. Yes, so many. Yes. Lord, you see these people here today. You see their need, God. You see all our needs. And you've met us here today in a powerful way. And we thank you, Lord. Lord, as we come now to worship you and to seek you in prayer, and we just ask that you'd meet every need in this place. I'm going to ask the leaders to come and on the sides of the building, their wives, and up front some. And, and if you need prayer during this time, just come up and just say, pray for me. You can share something if you want, or they just know what we've shared here today. They know we'll just lay hands and pray God to open the windows of heaven and pour blessings upon you. Lord, we want to seek your name right now.